Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV. And before we get into everything today, I just want to issue my general reminders to please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm, of course, at DJ L O U I E X I V. And get our merch, guys. The Niche Legend Dad hat, you gotta have it. It's a must have for summer. Looks great at the beach. Looks great with a tube top and cut off denim shorts. Like, there's nothing this can't go with. You could dress it up with a blazer. Looks so good. It's sleek, it's black, it's pink. That's available at poppantheonpod.com in our merch store. Of course, subscribe to our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, to get bonus content, access to our Discord channel, and so much more. That's, of course, at patreon.com slash poppantheon, and I will also link to it in the show notes. And lastly, Gorgeous Gorgeous, a bi-coastal phenomenon, is happening in two consecutive weeks in June on both coasts of this great country. This, of course, is my queer pop party. The LA Pride Edition is going down June 9th at resident in downtown Los Angeles and for Pride we are doing Lady Marmalade Night. I'll be playing all of your favorite hits by Christina, Maya, Missy, Lil Kim, Pink, and everybody else. Come dressed up. We want to see your looks. It's going to be Pride. It's going to be lit as hell. So come to Gorgeous Gorgeous LA June 9th at resident in downtown Los Angeles. And the following Friday June 16th is the debut of Gorgeous Gorgeous New York at the Sultan Room in Bushwick. I am so excited for that. I'm excited to literally die of exhaustion for the best cause ever to provide a sheer avalanche of pop tunes for all of my bi-coastal baddies, queers, allies, everybody else. So tickets for both of those will be available in the show notes of this episode. I will also post them on social media. All right, so that's enough from me. We're getting into an episode today that has been oft requested by the Pop Pantheon listenership. This is an episode about an artist who has had a fascinating 30-year career, dominated numerous markets across the world, broken down so many doors about what pop music in this country could sound like and what pop stars could look like, and her influence and impact is felt widely through the pop firmament of this day. So I've been really excited diving into her work. She is a dynamic and wonderful presence in the pop space. This is Pop Pantheon, Shakira. We're currently living through an exciting and unfortunately rather novel period of American pop history, where centrist English-speaking audiences are, en masse, finally embracing music sung in other languages and artists who don't make obvious concessions to our often narrowly conceived mainstream. It's happening with K-pop acts like BTS and Blackpink, and it's happening with the music of the Latin American diaspora, with artists like Bad Bunny, Rosalia, and Carol G, all of whom sing primarily in Spanish, refuse to alter their music to fit into the narrow confines of traditional American radio and have risen to become some of the biggest stars of the day in this country. It is impossible for me to think of this current movement without tracing it back to today's subject, Shakira, who throughout the late 90s, 2000s, and 2010s blazed a nearly unprecedented trail, first taking over countries that spoke her native tongue with her quirky poetic lyricism, rock gestures, and generationally distinctive voice before savvily pivoting her way into the embrace of the entire world, where she is still, in the year of 
Guitar Lord 2023, both a globally chameleonic hitmaker and an absolutely singularly international pop force. Shakira Ripoll was born in Barranquilla, Colombia to a Colombian mother and Lebanese father. Barranquilla, a Caribbean coast port city, was known as a huge musical melting pot, which had a monumental impact on a young Shakira, who wrote poems and songs as a child before scoring a record deal at 13 years old with Sony Columbia. In her mid-teens, she released two albums, Mahia in 1991 and Peligro in 1993. Neither succeeded commercially and were eventually pulled from release. After briefly retreating from the music industry, she returned with her breakthrough hit the pop rock Donde Estas Corazón in 1994, which featured her signature almost yodeling contra alto vocals, and the next year, her third album, Pies Descalzos. That record was part of a broader Latin American movement, rock and espanol, in which native Spanish speakers were finding massive success putting their own stamp on rock music, singing entirely in Spanish and not kowtowing to Anglo taste, while also remaining completely unique to Shakira's quirky, emotionally dense, and reference-filled lyrical flourishes. For her part, Shakira presented herself as a guitar-wielding brunette with a crunchy streak, often appearing in promo barefooted as the title promised. P.S. Descalzos established Shakira as a breakout star throughout Latin America, going platinum in numerous countries, including the U.S., where it eventually sold over 5 million copies and spun off numerous hits like the hooky declaration of love, Estoy Aquí. The success of P.S. Descalzos also caught the attention of Latin music empresario Emilio Estefan, then the most powerful record man in that marketplace, who identified Shakira's potential to break into the U.S. Emilio signed on as her manager and co-produced her follow-up, 1998's Donde Están Los Ladrones, which built on the sound of her previous record and became an even bigger success, selling 7 million copies worldwide and earning international attention and critical acclaim. Winning five Latin Grammy nominations and a coveted slot on MTV Unplugged, the show's first episode to be broadcast entirely in Spanish. Now even more confident in their ability to break Shakira in Anglo markets, Emilio and his wife, the superstar Gloria Estefan, had originally intended to simply translate the hits from Donde Están Los Ledrones for Shakira to sing in English. However, in a show of great chutzpah, Shakira eventually insisted that she instead learn English herself and write a suite of entirely original material that both retained the core DNA of her Spanish work and just enough of a twist to appeal to turn-of-the-century American pop radio. The result was 2001's Laundry Service, a diverse record that featured elements of Shakira's classic pop rock aesthetics, along with dalliances with tango, new wave, world beat, and more. The lead single, Whenever, Wherever, a euphoric blast of pan-Latin American dance pop complete with Andean flute and charangas, became her first mainstream American hit, peaking at number six on the Billboard Hot 100 and hitting number one across the world, including Europe, where it topped the charts in more than 15 countries. To the chagrin of many of her original fans, Shakira also notably altered her appearance in promo and music videos in this period dyeing her hair blonde, and donning more revealing outfits featuring impossibly low-slung pants. Laundry Service was a blockbuster, spinning off two more indelible hits, Underneath Your Clothes and Objection Tango, and sold 13 million copies worldwide. She followed it up in 2005 with an ambitious two-part project, the Spanish-language Fijacion Oral Volume 1 and the English-language Oral Fixation Volume 2. These records featured a series of global hits, including the sizzling Alejandro Sanz featuring reggaeton in 
inflected La Tortura, and the song that remains Shakira's most successful in the English-speaking world, the number one smash, Hips Don't Lie, featuring Wyclef Jean. In 2009, Shakira released her third English-language album, She-Wolf, largely a collaboration with Pharrell, which saw her pivot towards disco and dance music and produced the hit title track. The next year, she was enlisted to create the official song for the 2010 FIFA World Cup, which resulted in the global smash Waka Waka, This Time for Africa, her biggest global hit to date, topping the charts across the world and garnering 15 million downloads worldwide. And throughout the 2010s, Shakira continued to rather masterfully juggle her global appeal, releasing a well-received Spanish album, Sale El Sol, in 2010, her self-titled English album in 2014, and her latest full-length El Dorado, which featured the smash Chantaje featuring Maluma in 2017. In 2020, she performed as a dual headliner with Jennifer Lopez during a very well-received Super Bowl halftime performance, and nearly 30 years into her career, Shakira continues apace as a global hitmaker, just this year scoring her first two top tens in the U.S. since 2006 with Shakira, Bizarrap Music Sessions Volume 53 featuring Bizarrap, and TQG featuring Carol G. Shakira has sold over 95 million records worldwide. As of this year, Billboard reported that she is the best-selling female Latin artist of all time. Shakira is the female artist with the most top 10 hits on the Billboard Hot Latin Songs chart. She has seven platinum albums and 10 platinum singles in the US. She has won three Grammy Awards, 12 Latin Grammy Awards, four VMA Awards, seven Billboard Music Awards, and 39 Billboard Latin Music Awards. She was named the top female Latin artist of the decade by Billboard for both the 2000s and the 2010s, and was named by the Latin Recording Academy, the person of the year in 2011. Here with me to discuss the trailblazing global phenomenon that is Shakira is senior music editor at Rolling Stone, Julissa Lopez. Okay, I am here with senior music editor at Rolling Stone, Julissa Lopez. Julissa, welcome to Pop Pantheon. Hello, thank you for having me. It's my absolute pleasure. You were just asking me about whether I was a Shakira fan off mic and the truth of the matter is, I think I fall into the category that I think many of my listeners are going to fall into, which is I'm born in 1987, so I was of peak age when Shakira made her historic crossover into Anglo-speaking markets in 2001 or so. So I would say that prior to prepping for this show, I was your average basic uninformed American <laughs> about Shakira, i.e. I love her. I loved the music I was aware of. I would say I have more familiarity with her Spanish language music in the latter part of her career than in the pre-crossover era. But having taken this deep dive, I am absolutely taken with her in a way that I wasn't necessarily expecting. I've always thought she was a phenomenal performer. I've always thought she has an absolutely singular voice in the way that only the greatest pop stars do. The minute Shakira opens her mouth, you know exactly who is singing, which is a critical thing. I've always loved her. But man, I was just so taken with the scope of her ambition as an artist the different sounds she's traversed while retaining her singularity, her ability to bridge these markets across the world, her sort of business acumen. Like she's really a pop star like for the ages. And I think someone that's had a profound impact on the current state of pop music when I look out at 
all of these Spanish-speaking artists that have been able to become global phenomenons in this way, I really, for the first time, kind of put together for myself what a huge innovator she was in that space and how she's opened so many doors for so many of the biggest pop stars that are working today. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I guess I don't need to be on the show anymore. You kind of summarized it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm interested if your introduction to Shakira really was the crossover point. Was that the first time you had ever heard of Shakira? Absolutely. When the whenever, wherever video was on repeat loop on MTV for that entire two years, that was my intro to Shakira. On TRL every day. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. What's your relationship to Shakira? What's your journey with her? I found out about Shakira, I think, when I was a lot younger. I think it was for Donde Están Los Ladrones. My family is Nicaraguan, and so we would go to Nicaragua a lot when I was a kid, and her videos were always playing. And it was kind of that breakthrough moment of when she was really breaking in Latin America. It was right after Pies Descalzos, and then Donde Están Los Ladrones came out. And I remember fifth or sixth grade, I want to say. And I had a friend, Brenda Coro, who had the album and she would play it on like a yellow Walkman (laughs) and we would listen to it every day (laughs) on the bus. And it was crazy. That album for me is my favorite Shakira album. Yeah. And I think kind of being a preteen into teenage girl, there was so much that she was saying that I just found groundbreaking. And then whenever I would go back to Nicaragua, all my cousins were obsessed with her. It was a way we bonded. We knew all of her songs. And then to be in the U.S. and to see that crossover moment, so to have that view of her, what she meant in Latin America and what she meant to us as preteens, and then to see that transition happen was just crazy. It was my two worlds colliding, these worlds that I felt like were very separate, my family in Nicaragua and growing up in the U.S., and all of a sudden Shakira was bridging all of it together. That's so interesting that you got to witness the two moments where she registered with one part of the world and then the other, because I feel like that dichotomy between who she is to the Spanish-speaking world and who she is here has defined a lot of her career and her being able to effectively be a lot of things to a lot of different people and her willingness to do that has been, I think, one of the defining aspects of her career. What was your experience of her music as someone who was part of the Anglophone world or who grew up here? Her successful music in that peak era, how is it different in both places and how is she seen differently by the audiences in both of these parts of the world, do you think? There's a few different views of it because I think there's the Shakira fans who really kind of admire her ability to shapeshift throughout the years. And and you kind of have to be amazed by her ability to go from this pop rock star Mm -hmm. in the 90s and early 2000s and then see her transform into truly a global sensation. And I think probably one of the first truly, truly global Latin artists at the time. Yeah. And then I think there's people that fall under the camp of feeling a little bit betrayed because they loved early era. And I think she's always been an incredibly strong songwriter, but I think she had more of that traditional singer songwriter tendency in her music. And then that kind of evolved as it became more pop. Yeah. So I think there's a little bit of that tension of this isn't the old Shakira. There's actually a Bad Bunny lyric in his song, Como Antes from his first (laughs) album, where he's like, nothing is the same anymore. Not Shakira cure songs or anything. (laughs) (laughs) There's a little bit of that too, some people feeling protective of her and what she meant in those early years and then seeing all these mass transformations. Yeah. And you know, it's so interesting because I think as an American, as I was saying from the basic American perspective on it, I didn't totally clock that Shakira is primarily a rock artist in the eyes of a lot of people in Latin America and in Spanish speaking world. Shakira is 
a guitar playing, singer songwritery kind of rock front woman. Yeah. Because if you are at the most basic level of American audience with Shakira, what do you know? You know, whenever, wherever, you know, the belly dancing, you know, objection, you know, hips don't lie. Obviously, these more rhythmic pop, sometimes a little bit reggaeton, dancier elements to her music. And it was so interesting because the other thing that I was thinking about when we were talking about her longevity is she felt lumped in at the time as the Spanish-speaking answer to Britney and Christina was how she sort of registered for a lot of Americans who were my age was, yeah, she's obviously quirkier. Those two were, her lyrics were always eyebrow raising if you were an English speaker, that her breasts were small and humble so you don't confuse them with mountains. It's the lyric that all my friends and I were like, wow. But I think a lot of American audiences might not realize that Shakira, especially in the early part of her career, but even through her success in America, was primarily a rock artist who really put that element of her music forward. But then what I really love about it is that she wasn't beholden to that because she also functions just as incredibly as the lead of a phalanx of dancers doing choreography, making bubbly, fun, frothy dance music. She's equally adept at each thing. And as you were mentioning, that's part of her route to success. And the thing I was going to say just related to longevity was Shakira's had two top 10 singles in the United States in the year of our Lord 2023, which is more than a lot of her peers with whom she sort of seemed like a bit of a quirky outsider or in America kind of adjacent to the main tier of pop stardom, but kind of dancing around the outside in a singular, unique, weird way. She's outlasted a lot of her peers in that space in a way that is truly impressive. I mean, what pop star nearing 50 is tossing off two top 10 hits at this phase of their career? It's very rare, and I think it speaks to her enduring coolness, sexiness, and singularity that she's able to traverse all of these styles and adapt in ways that don't feel awkward. Definitely. Listening to her make contemporary sounding reggaeton or when she experiments with bachata or whatever it is, she's able to do all of that really fluidly in a way that a lot of pop stars in that phase of their careers are not able to with like contemporary sounds and music. Yeah, I think first of all, she's a really big music lover and I think she's really plugged in. She kind of gets it. And I think that ability to understand what is bubbling up and what people are interested in every area in her career. Like if we go back to the 90s, she talked about back then the comparison she was getting was like, oh, you're like the Spanish language, Latina, Alanis Morissette. Right. And she's talked about her influence as being blur and a lot of British rock and also just rock in Latin America, which was also really blowing up at the time. And then I think as that kind of transitions out into MTV becomes a thing and everybody's all of a sudden paying a lot of attention to Anglo pop music, being able to like adapt to that, but still make it feel like Shakira without feeling like, oh, this is just like another Britney imitation. This is just another whoever into what she's doing now where I think the Bizarrap music session and the Carol G song still feel really contemporary, but you're not like, oh, Shakira, this is awkward. Right. If anything, people were cheering her on for making these huge moves. And yeah, especially those two songs are so personal and I think have a lot to do with her personal life, being able to take it there and detonate into yeah. on the chart. Yeah. So I'm a huge fan yeah. and always have been. So. I'm in the army now for sure. And I think <laughs> your point is so well taken. No matter where she goes, what style she does, what era we're in. There's an essential Shakira-ness that I think comes back to the voice, the way she sounds. Just no mistaking it. The minute she opens her mouth, that is Shakira and that is beyond obvious. And her really singular approach to lyricism. 
lyricism, this sort of poetic, quirky, sometimes kind of bizarre way that she writes songs yeah. is so signature to her. And so it allows her, whether she's doing rock in Latin America, whether she's doing reggaeton, whether she's doing Pharrell songs or disco songs or merengue, all the different styles she's tried. Right. She always ultimately comes out in the wash sounding like Shakira. And that's the thing <laughs> about the best pop stars. The best pop stars really are able to do that. There's just something so singular about their force of personality. And man, she's got a force of personality. This was just one of those deep dives. I just found myself going beyond what I would normally do and just watching music video after music video. She's also just so sexy in such an unforced way. She's very alluring and weird at the same time, which is just <laughs> such a great, a great combo. All right, so let's go back to the beginning here. Let's rewind the clocks. What is Shakira's story, just broadly speaking? Where is she from? How does she grow up? What are the main things about her upbringing that help us understand the artist that she becomes? Sure. So Shakira grew up in Barranquilla in Colombia. And I think understanding Barranquilla is really important because it's a sport city on the north side of Colombia on the Caribbean coast. And I think Barranquilla, just by nature of being a port city, it's kind of this point of a lot of cultural intersections. You have a lot of ships that are stopping there on their way through the Caribbean. And you have a lot of different musical influences there as well. It kind of opens up Barranquilla to all these different influences. And I think one of those is mm. really a lot of African sounds and African music. Barranquilla is home to these really big sound systems called picos. And they're these huge boxes that are painted in like neon colors. But pico culture really is where a lot of African music starts to filter through into the rest of the city. And so you also have sounds like champeta that are really influenced by Afro-Colombian sounds. You have traditional sounds like vallenato. And then you also have a lot of rock sounds that are being passed through and entering Colombia. Argentina was a really big ground zero for the rock and Espanol movement. You have artists like Soda Stereo, led by Gustavo Cerati, who actually collaborates with Shakira later in her career. Shakira really is coming at things from being from Barranquilla and feeling like there are all these musical influences around her. And I think you see that in her music. And then I think the other thing that I would really stress is also Shakira's family. Her father was a Lebanese jeweler who was born in New York and moved to Colombia. Her mother's Colombian and of, I think, Spanish descent. So there's also this really strong influence of Middle Eastern and Arabic culture in Shakira's upbringing. So as early as when she's like three or four, she's going to these social clubs where her dad used to hang out that are all like Lebanese families in Colombia. And she's learning to belly dance at a really, really young age. The Grammy Museum just did like a big Shakira exhibition retrospective. And yeah. there's like a video where I got to participate in. My great friend and journalist, Isabella Herrera, got to participate in it. And this professor named Ariela Cepeda also shared something that I thought was so interesting. She calls Shakira a radical hybrid. And I feel like that's such a great way mm. to put it because she is this complete hybrid of cultures and sitting in this place that is the intersection of so many sounds and cultures. And I think just throughout her career, you later see how she pulls from these different places and uses different parts of that to kind of help with these transformations that we were talking about era to era. I'm so interested by that idea because that's always been something she's clearly understood about herself and really stood 
good behind. I feel like she's had a real sense of confidence about who she is as an artist and why she is singular and has leaned into that in so many ways. So I'm so interested to hear you lay that out in that way because she's like an artist for the era of globalization and she seems like she kind of knew that about herself in this weird way from very early on in her life and career. Yeah, I think she just truly felt that way, right? Because she's born in Colombia and then understanding this side of her father's family and then coming to the US. I think she felt very global. And I think we can kind of talk about the complications of that. There's probably some ways in which Shakira is a very light-skinned white artist where she could morph into different things in a way that is not afforded to other artists. But I think she means it when she's doing these things and becoming such a global artist. So feeling like she can do that because she connects with so many different parts of the world. Absolutely. It's very clear. And yes, we will talk about that. I mean, there have been obviously moments where she's overstepped like on that World Cup song. There was a lot of controversy I know about her being the front-facing artist for a World Cup that took place in Africa for some reason. But I think it just sort of speaks (laughs) to the global perception of her as Shakira being the premier world artist. The citizen of the world, (laughs) yes. Right. Right. So how does she sort of discover her passion for music? What is her journey to eventually landing this deal with Sony Columbia? So it starts really, really young. And she's talked about the first sort of taste of performing being in these Lebanese social clubs when she's three and four years old. She's been performing since she's a toddler, pretty much. Right. I've seen interviews with her where she says she wrote her first song when she was eight years old and her dad was a very literary person and introduced her to a lot of poetry and I think she was writing in her diary all the time. She knew that she wanted to be an artist when she was 10 and so because she had kind of this knack for performing as a kid, she's entering a lot of local singing talent shows and and doing these things and so somebody from Sony notices her when she's 13 and she signs her deal with Sony when she's 13 years old. So she Shakira starts recording her first album in 1991, Mahia. It's not great. <laughs> I don't even know how to describe this. You could probably contextualize this better than I can. But to me, it sounds just kind of plinky plunky AC radio down the middle pop ballads with very little personality. It's very strange. It's a lot of pop ballads, very heartbroken. Again, a lot of these are being repurposed from songs that she wrote when she was 13 years old. So right. they're a little ridiculous, right? Having someone that young <laughs> singing about heartbreak. Nobody in there is like, wow, Shakira, the 13-year-old, is saying these things that I have always felt. And the production is also just really backwards. It, it almost feels like 80s. It does. If you look at the music videos, there's a yeah. few still on YouTube, but like a soft yeah, glow saw, and these weird synths. And yeah. it's just not great. <laughs> it's not great. I wrote, this sounds almost like DeBarge runoff or something like that. <laughs> it sounds five years out of date, even for 1991. Yeah. Mahia doesn't do very well, but at the same time, I think she's got some recognition. I think Shakira is very commercial looking. She's very beautiful. I think people are interested, but this isn't making her millions of dollars or anything. No. I heard the album sold like 1,200 copies or something like that. So I think both Mahi and Beligro sold under 2,000 copies. Yeah. They just were not well received, even if they did kind of get maybe her face out there. So Peligro is right after. Peligro comes out in 1993. Same sort of deal. Really not a strong body of work, I would say. No. And 
And she knew this too. I mean, there was a sense, at least that I got from my research, that she was not fully behind these. Even in her young age, kind of knew that this wasn't what her vibe was going to be, essentially. Yeah, I mean, once those albums came out, when she was a little bit older, I think she's probably 15 or 16, she becomes so ashamed of them that she's like, I'm not going to re-release them. They're not on Spotify. Yeah, yeah. you can't find them anywhere. <laughs> yeah, They're yeah. not what Shakira could do, I don't think. No. And I think the combination of feeling like she didn't have a say in these albums in the way that she would, you know, they think that Sony was really driving a lot of the production on it. And I think, yes, some of the lyrics that were used on it were hers. I don't think that she felt yeah. like she was in the driver's seat. And I think that combined with just how badly the albums did from a commercial perspective, right. I think it really almost disenchanted her and, and made her think about whether she wanted to keep going in music. So what happens is interesting because she actually ditches the music thing for a few years and instead right. goes and works on a soap opera for several years. She works on the soap opera called Oasis from Colombia. And that kind of takes her into a different place, but apparently the entire time that she was on this soap opera, which I think probably was also really helpful in helping Columbia familiarize themselves with her, she's still writing and she's still interested in writing and she's still interested in becoming an artist. And so what ends up happening is that up until then, I think if you look at the history of Latin American rock, I think before probably the 80s and 90s, I would say there was a lot of rock music that imitated what was happening in the US or in right. Europe. And I think what starts to become really interesting during this period, especially in the 80s and I would say the 90s, is that a lot of rock artists start to really be like, you know what, we can do this in Spanish and we can do this with our own influences. And you see the rise of all these mm. different bands who are like, we're gonna do this our way. Sony realizes this is kind of happening and they decide to put out this compilation album called Nuestro Rock. And so they need a few artists on there to kind of show, here's what rock in Colombia sounds like coming from us and what we can do. And so they tap Shakira for it just to see what happens. And I think this is the first time they pair her with Luis Fernando Ochoa, who becomes mm -hmm. a big collaborator and songwriter. And I think that opens her up to kind of trying again. And she has these song lyrics ready and... The song ends up becoming Donde Estas Corazón. And so Donde Estas Corazón mm. becomes sort of her first breakthrough that I think sounds like Shakira, the way that we think of Shakira in that period, that definitive Shakira rock sound from the 90s and early 2000s. So in thinking about Donde Estas Corazón, and I'm so sorry for my Spanish accent, which is terrible. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to do my best here. What do you think it is that sort of is the click moment about this? What makes Shakira singular on record? And why is this song and the textures, aesthetics, what is she singing about here that helps crystallize what these early period Shakira songs are going to become that sort of establish her? The big thing is that I think she really embraces her voice. Right. The beginning of Donde Estas Corazón starts with that really, really deep Shakira tone. Yeah. Where the second you put it on, you know it's her. Right. 
I think too, just visually, you know, the music video, she's got sort of this long, almost Joan Baez style black hair that I think is tapping into sort of this edgy rock girl thing that compared to some of the glitzier 90s pop where a lot of the other artists have big hair and a lot of makeup. I feel like she's barefoot sometimes. There's an earthy quality to her. She's kind of like a wild child or something like that. Exactly. And I think that feels really authentic to people. And it ties really well with the lyrics of this song where the whole song translates to where are you corazón which really means heart it's it's kind of means where are you my love yeah and she's singing about how she can't find this person that she's in love with but there's some irony to it because she's doing it in a really literal way and there's this part on the song where she almost raps a little bit she kind of breaks into a little bit of a rap and she's like I looked for you in my armoire I looked for you in my diaries she's being very literal about it like I've looked for you everywhere where are you He's referencing paintings by Botero, who is the artist that painted really full-figured women. The songwriting is meant to be a little bit comedic and ironic, but she's also got these references like Botero that are artsy and I think make her just sound like she's really artistic and cultured and smart. That combined with the rhythm of the song, which is really catchy, just really takes off and makes people interested in what she's doing. Yeah, there's a lot of elements here that I feel like lay the groundwork, everything you're talking about. And then musically, you've got the guitar, you've got big electronic drum programming, you're saying you've got the wrapped bridge, you've got a big anthemic pop chorus, multi-tracked choral vocals. It's really like an interesting melange. To me, once she leans into that voice, that's really where her unstoppable quality comes in. There's just something about that yodeling voice that is just so distinctive and so alluring and so fascinating and weird. And then I think the other thing that's interesting that you're beginning to lay out here that I think is a really intriguing part of Shakira's lyricism is both her sort of high-minded artistic references and really specific quirky references that she brings into her songs. And then also something that I think is more clear on other songs on her third record, which is where this song ends up, which is she kind of deals with a lot of everyday scenarios, right? Isn't that a big part of Shakira's especially like in her Latin American music is the way that she sort of deals with mundane aspects of everyday life in her songs. Yeah, I think a lot of people that I've talked to both about Pies Descalzos, which is the album that Donde Estas Corazón ends up going on, and then Donde Están Los Ladrones especially, is that there is sort of a very diary-like quality to her songs. I think it's important to say that the style of writing isn't known in Latin America at the time. And it's not to say that she's the first person to ever do it or anything, but it's just not what was mainstream. You know, a lot of songs, especially for women in pop at the time were written by men. They were really baroque. They were about (laughs) heartbreak. And then Shakira is out here talking about, I don't know how there's flies in her house because she hasn't been able to get out of bed. (laughs) She's so (laughs) sad about a breakup. It was a style that felt very true to who she is. And also, I think I'll speak from a personal perspective, true to the stuff that goes through your head when you're a preteen to a teenager of stuff that you think about. And you could listen to a Shakira song and be like, oh my God, I've done that before. Totally. And I think a lot of people, especially in the US press, chalked up some of her quirky lyricism to getting lost in translation, but her lyrics in Spanish are just as singular to the Shakira quirk as any of her English language stuff is. So that's clearly just part of who she is as a songwriter. As you said, the reference to the flies, all the things that come up on these songs. I jotted down some in later songs that I'll bring up later that are just like, who comes up with this shit? Yeah, It's there present even in this early music, and it's definitely not a like lost in translation, Max Martin can't write in English kind of thing. It's a totally singular Shakira thing. 
thing. Yeah, and I certainly do think there is an element of maybe what she was doing and maybe the irony or the surrealism that sounds pretty in Spanish. Maybe I think English is a very different style to write in. You know, the construction is very different. But I would say that a lot of it just is you could find lines like my breasts are small and humble. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You could find an analog to that in some of her early work as well. Yeah. But I think two songs on Pies Descalzos like Antología, which it almost feels like that one's been reclaimed in later years. I remember that being one of my favorite songs. And when you hear it, it sounds like it's somebody describing their first time falling in love and they're heartbreaking. But it's so specific where it's like, because of you, I learned to love cats. <laughs> Again, it has that sort of diary quality where you're sure this is written about someone specific. She's talking about something really particular here where it's not just these kind of pop lyrics that could kind of apply to anything and are universal. And so I think that there's a useful quality to these songs as well that I think really connected with people at the time. Yeah, and I think that that also animates maybe the biggest song from this P.S. Descalzos, is that the right way to say it? Mm -hmm. Which means Bare Feet. That's the name of this third album that we're sort of talking about here. Astoya Key, right? Isn't that one of her signature songs? It's a big breakthrough for her. And it's this big bright, super sweet sounding, very youthful sounding pop rock song with guitar and is incredibly memorable melodically to me. This was one of the songs that I really kept returning to as I was doing my research here. This was a big breakthrough song for her as well. Estoyaki starts the record off. Yeah. And I think it's pop, but it also has an underlying rock thing that she's later playing with yeah. on the son los ladrones and then the title track blancos, i think also is sort of hard edge and very high-minded too it's talking about adam and eve and the forbidden fruit and it's like a social satire That whole song is nuts because I feel like she was so young at the time and she's essentially singing about all of the social pressures and social conventions that are expected of women. In the song, she's saying, I am this chaotic mess. I'm barefoot when everybody else is wearing high heels. I don't fit into this. And I think it's not only speaking into, I think, what a lot of girls feel, which is I don't fit in. and Mm. How do I make this work? But I think she's also making a statement about herself as an artist. I don't really fit in into whatever the pop tendency is at the time I'm very very different and I think a lot of people connected with that and she was speaking to a generation of girls but I think she was also separating herself from the pack a little bit fascinating okay so she has this third record it's kind of a mini blockbuster in a lot of Latin America it seems like to me I mean she's literally tossing off I counted maybe six singles from this album many of them are huge huge hits the record goes diamond in colombia it's a huge huge record and she follows it up in 1998 with the record that i think many people still see as the gold standard shakira record which is 1998's donde están los ladrones is that correct yes very correct which means where are the thieves which i guess she named after the fact that she had been writing lyrics for this record and they were in a suitcase in an airport and someone stole all of them so what's going on 
thought on this record and why do you think this record is the biggest moment in the first wave of Shakira as Latin American superstar? What's happening here? How does she refine her sound? And what are the signature songs that help us understand this work? Like you said, Besos Calzos has a lot of success in Latin America and it really establishes Shakira as this interesting figure who is doing this pop rock thing that nobody else is really doing in a mainstream way. So it gets a lot of attention and... What happens is that she's working with different promoters and starting these tours in Latin America and kind of building up that market. And there's a lot of eyes on her, including one promoter introduces her to Emilio Stefan, Gloria Stefan's husband, yes. kind of the <laughs> brains behind Miami Sound Machine. Right. Gloria and Emilio are looming figures in this space, generally speaking. Yes. They are the king and queen of the Latin American pop market in some ways. Yes. I think Gloria Stefan really broke through into the U.S. market with the help of Emilio, who became this sort of super producer. Every yeah. Latin star that has come out up until then is usually coming from this little incubator that Emilio Stefan has set up yeah. in Miami at Crescent Moon Studios. And so she gets introduced to him and then she goes to tour those studios. I interviewed Emilio Stefan about this and he was like, you know, I don't know that my plan was to produce her album and to start working with her, but she just kind of came in and she looked at the studio and then she was kind of like, what if we work together? Mm. Shakira's 19 years old at the time. She's got some balls to go to one of the biggest stars in Latin music and kind of be like, you know what? This is a good alignment. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do stuff together. And she worked out a deal with him too, where she got to keep a lot of the control of her songs, which I think was really important to her. And I think is something that she probably learned after those experiences with Mahian Peligro. And she's got this momentum from Pies Descalzos. There's a lot of things going her way. But it starts off on a bad foot because, like you said, when she's on tour for Pies Descalzos and at an airport in Bogota, she has her suitcase stolen. And so apparently this was kind of a mini crisis in Colombia where Shakira apparently put ads out, ads on the radio being like, if you have found Shakira's suitcase, you can keep everything that's in them. Just please give her back her lyrics because she's starting <laughs> oh to work on this God. album and she needs them. Wow. And so sadly, they never got back to her. So wow. he starts working on the album from scratch. And she's got the strength of what Emilio has, which is great equipment and talent and access to people and starts putting her in different writing rooms with people and they begin working on Donde Están Los Ladrones, which I think in a lot of ways follows what she had already done on Pies Descalzos in that it's got that rock sensibility. She's pushing a little harder into these sort of sounds that are a little bit unexpected and a little bit jagged and abrasive in a certain way in certain mm. places. But Emilio, I think, also kind of gets there is an attraction to Shakira and Latin music is such a <laughs> generic umbrella term for dozens of different countries, dozens of different cultures. And the double-edged sword about it is that all of it gets lumped together. But the upside of it is that you can tap into all of these different sounds that are folded into what Latin is, what Latin music is, what the Latin sound is. Mm. And so I think that they see a chance to do that on this album and they start venturing out in different places on here. So while I would say that Donde San Los Ladrones is very much centered around rock, you hear these different influences that start coming in. And I think one of the songs where you hear that is Ciega Sorda Muda, where it almost starts with these big mariachi trumpets and this big swelling, almost like a Mexican sound sound. That then transitions into sort of a big pop heartbreak anthem. Right. Right. 
And again, she's bringing in the rap where she goes really super fast. Right. And the lyrics again, brute, blind, deaf, <laughs> dumb, clumsy, fretful, haggard, skinny, ugly. She's got this almost free association, wild approach to the way that she writes some of these songs that make them so interesting lyrically, I feel. It's not what other women were saying at the time. You know, other women were talking about, yeah. I have bags under my eyes and I'm haggard and I'm skinny and I look disgusting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, right. She's willing to be kind of ugly and gross in her lyrics, which is so funny because she's obviously so gorgeous and beautiful on the surface. And it's a really, I don't know, maybe that gives her the permission structure to be a little bit grittier. It reminds me of how great actresses are willing to just throw it all out there and leave it on the stage in that particular way. Like, I feel like that's how Shakira approaches her lyrics. She's yeah. willing to be icky or gross sometimes in ways that are very human and appealing. Yeah, definitely. And I think that humanity probably is the big connective tissue in all of it. I think Sega Sota Mula, you know, has become one of Shakira's most beloved songs in Latin America. I think also on this album, you saw it to some degree on Vias Escalzos with the title track being one where she was doing a lot with the visuals and tapping into this imagery of Adam and Eve and yeah. that music video is sort of at a weird masquerade ball and she's running around a field barefoot and playing with the different ways where her visuals can kind of enhance the lyrics and the musical sounds on the song. And I think that goes farther on Donde Están Los Ladrones, where the video for Sega Sorda Muda, she's doing things that are unexpected. That music video, it starts with her at a party that gets broken up. And then for some reason, Shakira gets arrested. So a lot of the music video takes place with her in jail and she's getting her mug shot and she's getting fingerprinted and her love interest in the music video breaks her out of jail. And as they're driving, she's blindfolded the whole time. So she's playing with this idea idea of how blind and how dumb she feels in this relationship. And I think maybe what you would have thought would happen is she's writing a song about feeling betrayed or she can't trust this person. The expected route is like she's crying and she's on a bed and she's distraught. But Shakira is doing things that are very almost silly, like mm-hmm. her driving on a car blindfolded. And then yeah, 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 yeah. there's another scene in the music video where she's dressed up as a mannequin and she's a mannequin when she does that really super fast rap part. Yeah, right. So I think there's just a lot of ways that she's also using the visual identity of the music and trying out things that not a lot of other people were doing at the time. Right. And she had this very singular look at the time on the cover that Medusa style braids and she definitely understood the visual medium of pop stardom very clearly and how to sort of utilize her physical form and the way that she looked and her hair and her clothes and how she was presenting in these music videos to sort of flesh out the world of this music. I feel like Shakira has a really keen sense of how to present herself visually and always has throughout her career whether in live performance on music video whatever and I know that that album cover with the braids and everything is incredibly iconic Yeah and her hands are dirty it was like a metaphor for how we are all thieves in our own way and all of our hands are dirty. Yeah, it speaks to, I think, the level of scope and ambition that she approaches these projects with is really fascinating. And I think just sharing my perspective as somebody that really was not sort of cued into this part of Shakira's career, this is an artist who's making almost concept albums and there's these huge ideas behind them and there's so many references going on. And this experience of listening to this music for me in retrospect was just so mind-opening because I just didn't totally understand 
the scope of her artistry and the amount of ambition that she was bringing into these projects that registers to me in so much of the music as you were saying where she in classic Shakira fashion or what would become classic Shakira fashion as you were mentioning just traverses a lot of different styles while still somehow having this stuff hang together on the force of her personality you've got this big electric guitar rocker Cite Vas which is like another big yeah. hit from this record The Alanis thing comes in on a couple of these songs. You could hear it on a few of these records. What's interesting about the comparison to me with Alanis is that Alanis' songs are all, especially the songs that I think we're talking about here as Shakira references, which are Jagged Little Pill, which is obviously one of the most iconic breakup expressions of anger pop albums in history is that a lot of Shakira's songs are like devotional about love there's a lot of yeah thematically what she approaches on these songs is a lot different than what Alana's songs are so in some ways I see the comparison and then in some ways I sort of am like I think that they're so different in terms of how they approach the lyrics and what their POV is that it's not a one-to-one in any way in the sense that it seemed like it got framed a lot maybe by American press more than anything I think that's a great point and I think it's very much like an Anglo shortcut that happens with a lot of Latin artists where they get to the right. US and the easiest way to situate them in world pop is to find the American analog. And I think for a lot of people that was like, oh, like Alanis Morissette, she's got a peculiar voice that some people don't get. She's writing about heartbreak. That's who it is. Right. There's a songwriter on the song Do, this guy, Dylan O'Brien, who I interviewed at one point, he told me that when he first met her and she was coming off of the success of Pies Descalzos, even though it had nothing to do with it, a lot of people too, like in the studio were telling him, they're like, oh, she's kind of like the Latina Madonna. Mm. And then he listened to her music and was like, she has nothing to do with Madonna. But again, <laughs> I think that happens a lot, right? right? Where they just kind of find like comparison of, I don't have time to listen to the music. So this is the closest thing that I can think of. Right. To just like create a comp that makes sense for our basic ass brains, I guess, over here. <laughs> I feel like a song that's really important on this record is Ojas Asi, which really stands out. It's this big, slamming Middle Eastern strings that. I think kind of presents the Shakira that many Americans will meet the following couple of years. It's not so rock indebted and it features her belly dancing, which is a huge part of Shakira as the Anglo world comes to know her. What do you think is going on in this song? And do you agree that this song feels like an important moment in helping to set the table for her crossover ambitions or her world scale ambitions that are going to characterize the next phase of her career? 100%. I think this is completely what transitions her into that global stardom world where I think that when they made the song, they saw that she could do that. They saw how much people all over the world were responding to it. Yeah. And I think they kind of think, oh, wow, we can really, really, really go forward with this global thing. Always I see is an interesting one because I've talked to Pablo Flores. He's a writer and, and I think also produced it. And basically Shakira came in and she's meeting with all these different people that Emilio is introducing her to at Crescent Studios. And again, she's 19, 20 years old. She's incredibly young and she's right. <laughs> in these room with all these men. And I think a different scenario, they could have just told her what to do but I think it kind of shows just how ambitious and forthright she was that she was like actually I'm going to tell you guys what we're doing here right and so she goes in and she's like it's always been really important for me to make a song that honors my Lebanese heritage that has some Middle Eastern sounds and so originally they played her a song that they had pitched to Madonna who at the time was working I think on the Don't Cry for Me Argentina soundtrack yeah on Avida. yeah and so 
they play her this medley that then actually told me that Mandy Moore ended up using it later, like the original thing that they... Oh my God. Wow. What a factoid. He plays her this little medley and she's like, this is kind of like the vibe that I'm going for, but I don't want to do this. I want to start completely from scratch. Mm. And so they start working together with her in the room on what becomes Oh Jose. It becomes a really big production where she really pushes that she needs authentic Middle Eastern musicians for this. He described mm. driving around Miami, going to different restaurants, being like, do you have somebody that plays this kind of instrument? <laughs> and they finally get everybody together in the studio and everybody plays. And the song, I think, is so driven by big electronic dance rhythms. But I think what grounds the whole thing is that there's those Middle Eastern rhythms, that Middle Eastern instrumentation. <laughs> I absolutely love this song. It's so good. It's still one of my favorite songs. I sometimes wonder and I go back and listen and I'm like, was it just that I was a teenager? But I'm like, no, this whole record to me still completely stands up decades later. It's still such a good album, such an amazing body of work. And Ojo Sassi, I think, connected everywhere. You know, it's one of the songs that really jumps through there's dance remixes that, you know, are, are played at clubs everywhere. And Pablo talked to me about that too. Just all of a sudden they're playing the song Europe and it becomes like a hit everywhere. And I think kind of followed some of the pop patterns that were happening elsewhere at the time. You know, I think by then Pablo Flores had also worked on the remix for Ricky Martin's The Cup of Life. And right. there was kind of this beginning of trying to figure out quote, world fusion pop and sounds that mixed in a lot of different cultures. I think there was becoming more of an interest in that. And Ojo Sassi just mm. fit right into that vibe. And so while they're finishing Donde Están Los Ladrones the entire time, Emilio Stefan has said that he kind of had it in his mind that Shakira could one day do music in English because that's kind of what they did for Gloria, right? Gloria right. jumped in and started making music in English. And Shakira didn't speak any English at the time, but the entire time that she's recording Donde Están Los Ladrones, she's working with a tutor, she's getting lessons, and she's becoming fluent. Mm-hmm. And one of the producers on that project was like, yeah, I met her when she started at the beginning of nine months and then when I met her by the end she was totally fluent and writing in English she was just firing on all cylinders and really ambitious about she wanted to figure out how to crack the English language market. So three questions I want to ask you before we talk about her international explosion here in this next record which is A she's coming off of these two huge albums they're both hugely successful super critically well received is she like the biggest new star in latin america at this point following these two records how would you characterize shakira's fame in the markets where she is the most successful at this point following these two albums i think business gods have sold something like three million copies maybe yeah she's starting to get recognition everywhere and her success in the u.s is also ramping up because i think there's a lot in music market here that right. is looking too latin american what's happening there and in the u.s business gods went gold she is put on i want to say like a spanish version of billboard magazine she's on a cover here mm-hmm. she goes to a big Univision, like an award show it's building for her 
pies descalzos. And then I think yeah. once Donde Están Los Ladrones come out, once the videos start coming out, once people really start seeing the range of this project and also just with the backing of Amelia Stefan and also Gloria Stefan, who becomes her really close friend and like a confidant during this period. I think after there, Shakira becomes the hottest thing in the Latin music space. And then my two other follow-up questions to that are, there is at this moment a larger Latin crossover into English-speaking markets happening. A, is that something that's on Shakira's mind at this exact juncture? And B, how do you think she's seeing herself? Do you think that this is something that she always has her sights on? Is this something that Latin American artists in general that have come before her aspire to? This crossing over into the English-speaking marketplace. Can we contextualize this move in the broader wave of the moment and then just more broadly speaking for Latin American artists throughout pop history? There is a history of this. I think probably in my younger days as a journalist, I would characterize it as these different boom cycles a lot. And I think it's important to just say that Latin music has always been able to grow by the strength of its own output versus just what is popular or commercial in the eyes of an Anglo market. But I do think that there was, and I think a lot of that is probably Emilio Stefan, where Emilio had worked with Ricky, he had worked with Gloria. He's used to seeing this. And Emilio Stefan is also the person who starts the Latin Grammys because he feels like in the US, there's not enough recognition of the scope of what's happening in the Spanish language music space. I can't say for sure where the idea came from, but I think it's very much Shakira sees the potential and Emilio Stefan sees the potential. And I think with the two of them working together, they really are able to map this out. And like I said, you know, at the time, there were some smaller artists like John Cicada had some crossover success. And then Ricky is the really big one where Ricky had just come off of this huge pop moment. I think it took Ricky like three albums to really click for people and to have his biggest hit. And they just felt like Shakira was at the right place at the right time. She's the right artist. There's something really unique about her. People are connecting with her everywhere. There's a biography written by Jimena Diaz, and she talks to you about how the success of Ojo Sassi, I remember, was really big in Brazil. There was something about mm. the fact that the music was also connecting in Brazil. There is just evidence that Shakira could work if you scale her right at a global level. Right. And I think the big way that that road starts is by breaking into the English language market. Right. I think for Shakira, it becomes the number one goal. Yeah. Are you enjoying this episode? Do you like what you're hearing? Well, you might need to subscribe to our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access. If you join for just five bucks a month at the Icon tier, you'll get access to all of our bonus content. This includes deep dives into classic albums like Janet's The Velvet Rope with Rich Doswiak, Taylor Swift's Reputation with Britney Spanos, and Britney's Blackout with Troy McKitty, as well as reviews of new records like SZA's SOS with Owen Myers and Miley's Endless Summer Vacation with Shad D'Souza. With new episodes being published all the time, we also touch on all your favorite new songs, fluctuating pop star Panthe on positions and so much more plus you get access to our discord channel the guest list at my party gorgeous gorgeous and a ton of other great perks so sign up today at patreon.com slash or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode in thinking about laundry service which is her english language debut in 2001 how do they shift the approach how do they change what they were doing on her successful 
previous couple of records to adjust whatever the Shakira thing is for an American market. What are they attempting to do here, I guess, aesthetically? How do they crack this code or attempt to crack this code in this music? Well, I think they kind of test drive it first. So one of the first early experiments was they had Shakira go on the Rosie O'Donnell show and basically they transcribed into English the song Inevitable into a song called Inevitable. Right. And she sang it in English just to kind of see if it works. Yeah, right. <laughs> Initially, what they thought that they were going to do, as Emilio described it, is basically just take all the songs from Donde Están Los Ladrones and translate them into English. And it was Gloria Stefan that was really pushing to be like, these songs really work in English, too. You're a good songwriter. They can work in any language. And I think that Shakira really felt like she wanted to kind of start from scratch and write from the beginning. And so that's how Laundry Service really, they start putting it together and it's completely new songs. I think Ojo Sessi is the only one that they put in English on that record. But for the most part, these are completely new songs. Shakira was living in Miami at the time too. So she's in the US. I think there's also different influences right. and she's been working now for at least one album cycle, stateside producers and stateside writers. But the big thing, and she has always said that she dyed her hair before <laughs> making yeah. the conscious decision to start in laundry service. Yeah. But the big thing that people notice and that gets her a lot of critiques is that she dyes her hair blonde, which a lot of people think is to pass more easily into the Anglo mm. market and to be this blonde bombshell. Right. Britney style stuff. Yeah. And then I think also, especially when Whenever Wherever comes out and when the music video comes out for that, Isabelia Herrera, who's a good friend of mine, talks about this a lot. Yeah. But there is sort of this exoticism that all of a sudden is now mm. associated with her style. Wherever, whenever is a lot sexier than anything that she did on Donde Están Los Ladrones. She's in a tiny crop top with leather pants. And she belly danced on the video for Ojos Así. And I think that's really memorable. But this is a different level of sexed up and of appealing, I think, to probably like an older pop market. Yeah. Presentation changes a lot. I mean, you look at the music video for that song and she is no longer, as I said, presenting as a rock front woman, which is how she seemed on so many of these past songs. And this is how so many people meet her. She's in the low slung pants and the bralette and it's a full dance extravaganza. And the song is just such a banger. Yeah. I mean, this song is so freaking amazing. It's more dance poppy oriented thing than what a lot of her previous music had been Oasisi notwithstanding, but it still has that signature Shakira elements of rock with Andean music and pan pipes and charango. It contains that singular way that Shakira can synthesize world sounds or pan Latin American sounds, I guess, in this particular moment, but definitely feels much more pop star than some of her rockest leanings in the previous work, I think. And I think they're really leaning into that exoticism. Like you said, the Andean flutes in there and like in the lyrics, she's referencing the Andes mountains. Yeah. She's like shooting up from the depths of the sea in that music video. It's almost shrouded in this mystery of who is this exotic creature that has just come up 
in front of us. And right. I think on some level that works and it did work and everybody was really interested in Shakira. I think you could also look at it through a lens of being a little bit frustrated that that ended up being the marketing for her because why is it that Latin artists are always presented with this veneer of exoticism? Right. What world do they come from? Oh my God, what is Colombia? Mm. The presentation and the marketing of Shakira, I think in this period is getting a lot of scrutiny from her longtime fans. But at the same time, it's working in the US market where these things that they wanted people to bite, yeah. they did. And I think a lot of that had to do with Emilio Stefan kind of knowing what he wanted to do and where it would work. Yeah, completely. I can see how tried and true fans of her might feel that way. But when I listen to this song, as I said up top, no matter where she goes, it's still so her. Even though this feels like a new thing for her, this song is so Shakira. I mean, from the sort of yodeling, that whole part of it. To the incredibly memorable lyrics, lucky we were born that far away so we can both make fun of distance. I love that lyric. Obviously, the breasts are small and humble, of course, the most iconic English language Shakira lyric ever. Also, just her sheer gusto and force of personality that just rockets through all of these songs. This song is such an ecstatic pay-on to romance and the rush of euphoria and being in love. And she conveys that so convincingly and with so much panache. It's almost hard for me to look back on this and think about us lumping her in even with the kind of Britney Christina movie. It feels entirely different to me. It just feels completely like only Shakira could have made this song. Definitely. You couldn't pass this song around to any other artist. So despite the fact that she maybe was pivoting in slight ways to give this a sheen that could have appealed to American audiences in whatever controversial or sticky way she was doing that. She certainly didn't sacrifice her essential Shakira-ness to make this happen. Definitely, definitely. And I think that that's also kind of why the move works, right? Yeah. There are these certain things that are tailored to maybe satisfy whatever people thought that an Anglo audience would want. But I think that Shakira is also, throughout her career, after those first two albums failed, there's one thing that she's kind of always said is that she's sort of driving it. She's not going to do what her label was telling her to do. She wasn't going to just put on a tight skirt and do another version of Baby One More Time. It had to be coming from Shakira. And I think it also helps Like she's still a really strong songwriter. And I think no matter what, for me, Shakira's music always goes back to there's a sense of songwriting and there's a way that she is completely distinct in the style of how she writes, whether it's in English or Spanish. And the sound is more pop, but I think if you took the lyrics and put them in a different context, that could easily be on Fiesta Scalzos or Donde Están Los Ladrones. 100%. And also, the person I can think of so weirdly, who's also just like such a distinctive lyricist, especially in their word choices, is Mariah Carey, kept coming to mind for me as someone where it's like, <laughs> you immediately know the words she's going to use are just so singular to her. In her own way, Shakira actually reminds me of that. You hear a Shakira lyric and you're like, that's a Shakira lyric. Again, as we're talking about an artist that has just managed to maintain their own distinct identity and brand through so many eras and styles of music, retaining that and knowing how to work that is such a fundamental part of how to achieve what she's achieved and the longevity that she's achieved and this diversity in style that she's been able to inhabit over her career. So what's happening on the rest of Laundry Service? So obviously, Whenever Wherever is a massive global smash. This song goes number one across the world. It goes number six here in America. She's got two more pretty big hits from this record, including the second single, which is a more classic Shakira 
Akira slow rocker called Underneath Your Clothes. She's got Objection Tango. That is another big hit. What happens on Laundry Service as an album is wherever, wherever instructive for how the rest of this record sounds. How would you characterize the rest of this album? I feel like you could draw a lot of parallels to Donde San Los Ladrones and the way that she was tapping into different sounds with the way that she did that on Laundry Service. I think to some degree, she had a little bit of a map that she knew would also work on here with the biggest ambition on this being that she was going to do it in English. There's still a lot of rock influences on here, right? And a lot of weird songs like Poem to a Horse, which she like wrote to somebody who's a pothead. But then, you know, a song like Objection, then she's playing with a tango sound. I think it's also like a way of pulling in those different influences the way that she did on Donde San Los Ladrones, where there were some mariachi trumpet style guitars. Here she's trying out Andean flutes on whatever, wherever, and also playing with that tango sound. And then Underneath Your Clothes, I think is more of her ballad moment that again, I think shows off that songwriting. I mean, Underneath Your Clothes is such a great title for a record. It's beautifully written. I think it stands out today as one of Shakira's iconic songs. And the fact that she did it in English, not as a native English speaker, I think really speaks to just, I think, how her style and her way of thinking worked in a song format. Underneath Your Clothes weirdly almost reminds me of like a Shania Twain ballad or something like that. <laughs> I kept thinking about You're Still yeah, the definitely. One or something like that. But yeah, I agree. I love the Underneath Your Clothes as a titillation, but that also is ultimately about being emotionally vulnerable in a similar style to Christina Aguilera's Stripped a year later. That was definitely a thing the girlies were working at that time, like using a titillating title, but then being like, no, it's actually about revealing my emotions to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So obviously, Laundry Service is her biggest record to date. They achieved everything that they had attempted to or wanted to in terms of crossing her over into American markets. This record sells 13 million copies worldwide. It's huge. Shakira then takes a bit of a break. And I'm wondering what in the interim between Laundry Service and her oral fixation series that is her next big project in 2005, how is her success globally and her success singing in English received by her OG fans. What is the perception of Shakira's success in Anglo markets by her original supporters in Latin America? I think it's actually kind of tough for her. And I think you see that on the Underneath Your Clothes video, because on the one hand, she has these fans who were like her OGs, who I think are sort of split between being amazed and proud and seeing how far she goes. And all of a sudden, she's a massive pop star in the US to those like I was talking about before who are feeling frustrated by what they feel is an effort to whitewash. Yeah, whitewash and feeling like she kind of sold out because this feels different than what she was doing before. She's not the hippie, barefoot, love child walking down the street. She's this like blonde shell belly dancing in the mountains. Still in bare feet though. (laughs) (laughs) She never found the shoes. No, never found her shoes. There's that side of it. And I think something that she touches on on the underneath her clothes video is that there's also in the Anglo market, almost a little bit of an obsession with being like, 
oh my gosh, where did you come from? What is it like to say right. in English? And she plays with that a little bit in the beginning of the right. video where the video starts with her at a press conference and she's getting all these questions fired off to her and she starts answering back in Spanish. The kind of show I think that she found the whole thing a little bit reductive. Right. Shakira, Shakira, what's it like to cross over and, and sing in English? Bueno, yo creo que cuando la música penetra en el corazón del artista se produce como una conexión entre el espectador y el intérprete, ¿no? La poesía, las alusiones, hasta la danza, pero no cualquier tipo de danza, sino la danza. English. That whole video, too, is sort of about how she has this one boyfriend who I think at the time she was dating the president of Argentina's son. And she has this one boyfriend who's in the video is the one that's with her backstage and in her van, and he's the one that gets her. So I think, like any artist, that level of fame and that sudden rush into the English language market. And I think because of that, too, she becomes a huge deal and an even bigger deal than she was in Latin America because everybody's so amazed by how things are going in the US. And I think it's kind of overwhelming. I think it's overwhelming for a lot of artists if all of a sudden you're thrown into the very top of pop culture and pop fame. Yeah. And you know, it's so interesting. I was just thinking too, just as we're tracking her as kind of a trailblazer in this space, which I think she really is, kind of what you had to do in order to make this all work in a way that now we have someone like a Bad Bunny who can just make Bad Bunny songs. There's no concessions that have to be made. Yeah. And he can have smash hits in America because the marketplace has now been opened up thanks to people like Shakira who blazed this trail. Shakira did have to walk a really delicate tightrope in order to help expand people's minds or open up these doors in the Anglophone world. And I think she did a really fucking good job of it. I can't stress enough. I know how it could have seemed or that the way that she got pegged by some people in the press and probably by some of her OG fans or whatever in terms of selling out. But looking back on it, as I mentioned, I'm just so moved by how much she clung on to her essential qualities through this whole move and never sacrificed what makes her her, which would have been easy. I mean, they could have easily thrown her in the studio with Max Martin and attempted to make a Britney song or whatever. And that's not what she did. And I just have a deep admiration for her tenacity and her knowledge of self that permeates this entire career. She seems like somebody that really is incredibly ambitious and willing to try and do lots of different things, but at the same time is true to herself and has a very clear artistic and moral compass about who she is as an artist. And I think that permeates everything that she does. And I wonder, I guess, in framing her next two albums, which are one in Spanish and one in English. One is called Fijacion Oral, my one. And the second is called <laughs> Oral Fixation 2. What is happening here and how is releasing these two albums in this series maybe an answer to some of the criticism? Or is there a way in which these two albums are attempting to sort of once again answer to some of these criticisms that are being lobbed at her? Yeah, first of all, I, I mean, I agree with you. And I think especially with these two albums, I don't think that when they came out at the time, I fully grasped the scope of just how innovative what she was doing was. Because essentially what she's doing is she's feeding both markets at the same yeah, time, right. where she's like, I'm not going to lose my place in the Latin market. And I'm not going to lose my place in the US right. market. I'm not going to choose one over the other. <laughs> I'm going to do both at the same time. I'm going to multitask. She was always doing the work of two pop stars in one person. It's like insane. Yeah. And I don't think I realized <laughs> that when this album came out, it's only now that I've been thinking about it later. I just kind of thought I was like, Shakira is just a great songwriter. And she has enough songs to fill two right. records. And I'm excited that both are coming out. I remember really, really looking forward to these albums. But now looking back on it, it was such a smart 
smart commercial and business savvy move, but also smart for her public image. You can't say that she doesn't care about her Spanish language fans anymore because she's still making music for them. And And pointedly putting that one first. Exactly. And I actually think some of the best songs are on that one. She's trying things that are really, really different. She worked with Gustavo Cerati, who is sort of an icon in Latin America and showing I can still bring out the big guns and bring out the icons. And I know these rock stars and we're going to make a great album together. And then Oral Fixation, I think, was just as good, I would say. Also, maybe we have to talk about the La Tortura moment because... What a song. (laughs) What a song. This might be my favorite Shakira's. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, she's kind of preemptively understanding this move into reggaeton that's going to come much, much later and doing it in a way, again, where it's not like Shakira featured on the Gasolina remix or something at the time, which, you know, Gasolina also came out that year, but she's really kind of understanding what her way into it is. And I mean, collaborating with Alejandro Sanz, of all people, you know, he's a pop artist from Spain with like a crazy catalog, but not the number one artist at the time. It wasn't like Shakira trying to do something with a daddy Yankee kind of figure that was taking off. It felt very much like this is what made sense for her and how she could get into it. Lato Torre is so fascinating. Also, I love the melodrama of the song. I love the back and forth between the two of them. It almost feels like you're watching a soap opera or something like that. There's something so sultry and sexy and melodramatic and romantic. And it's like a full movie happening on this song. And I love his voice and her voice together. They're so good. Uh. This song is just brilliant. I love the lyric that is translated to man cannot live on bread alone and I cannot live off of excuses. Like preach mother. That's so good. It's so good. Speaking of Mother, too, I mean, we have to talk about the visuals of this album. It's like her breastfeeding on this cover. The English language one is her as Eve yes. in the leaves. She's tapping into these images that are going to be really iconic for the rest of pop music. And even Halsey did the breastfeeding thing. On her last album, the first thing I thought about, I was like, oh, that reminds me of the Shakira one. Oh my God, you're so right. I didn't even think about that. That's so true. And also, I think La Tortura, as you were saying, is a very savvy move into reggaeton that's very predictive of where pop's going to go. But she also doubles back and re-establishes her rock bona fides on a lot of these songs. Definitely. A lot of these songs are back in the rock style, both on the English and on the Spanish language one. And what I think is really interesting, commercially speaking, is La Tortura is a hit in America and a hit on the Billboard charts as a Spanish song, and it's a breakthrough in a lot of ways, it's the first Spanish language video to ever air on MTV without being translated into an English language version. It's the first Spanish language song to be performed in Spanish on the American Video Music Awards. So she's having success in ways that she clearly wasn't before the English breakthrough, even with her Spanish language material. What I think is really interesting, though, commercially, is that the actual native songs to Oral Fixation, the English album, don't perform particularly well. Yeah. The lead single Don't Bother, which is definitely not a wherever, whenever sort of dancey, poppy confection. It's a darker edged, rocky song that almost reminds me of 
again, my references are so dumb. You're going to think this is dumb, I think. But like, <laughs> not at all. This almost reminds me a little bit of my December era Kelly Clarkson or something like that, where she went from creating these bulletproof pop bangers that broke her through into broader public consciousness and made her a big star. And then she kind of pivots back and is trying to make something that has a little bit more of an edge to it. Don't Bother isn't a particularly successful song in America. And I think, tell me if I have this wrong, there's not a lot of music on here that feels like wherever, whenever. And I think there seems to have been a bit of a panic on the part of the American label. And that is kind of the birth of what becomes Shakira's signature global smash hit, which is a song that is not on the original version of Oral Fixation, but gets recorded I guess, later in the process, which is Hips Don't Lie. Again, a song that doesn't feel particularly in conversation with any of the music that's on either of these albums. So what's your understanding of how Hips Don't Lie comes to be and what that says about how Shakira working in her more traditional rock style doesn't necessarily translate particularly well to American audiences? So I think that with Vihasyong Oral too, right, there was kind of like a reset for her. All of a sudden, she's reached this critical mass. Let me go back to my weird little corner and make things that are unexpected. And I remember the rollout for this. There's a lot of anticipation built up for it. I remember there was like a mini trailer for the album where she was speaking in English and then Spanish and then French. And I think kind of leaning into that global thing again. Personally, I think this is such a brilliant album. Yeah, it is. I think both of them are, especially Vihasyong Oral. What's interesting is that there are a lot of songs that kind of tap into a little bit of an experimental electronic sound, like Entus Pupilas. La Pared has like a sweet dreams are made of these kind of vibe to it. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I do wonder what the label pressure had been, but I do think there was a little bit of an organic tendency. Shakira was already thinking about that electronic sound. Right. Maybe not in an as obvious way as she does on She Wolf, but she's kind of taking smaller steps toward there. And I think too, like, it's probably worth thinking about it's 2005, what's happening in pop music at the time. I think there's a lot of Timbaland influence. I think a lot of the production is getting a little spacey and dance oriented. So I can't necessarily speak to what label pressure she had at the time, but I do think that it kind of felt like it wasn't a 1000% 180 because she is trying different things that at least show that she's interested in dance music and some of these sounds. And then with Hips Don't Lie, I have no idea how she and Wyclef came together, but I think it was also kind of a return to this like Barranquilla sound of playing without dance influence, but also taking it from where she comes from and being very, very specific and very intentional about how that plays into the song and into the music of still being able to draw Colombian inspiration, but also kind of playing with what's happening in pop music at the time and trying to follow that format a little bit. The biggest revelation of my entire research for this episode is that this is a freaking remake of another song. I had no idea. Yeah. (laughs) So as you were mentioning, Shakira makes these incredibly ambitious double album, one in English, one in Spanish. Spanish. There's a lot of experimentation on it. There's a lot of rock edge to it. There's a lot of darker edge to it. They're like concept albums. They're really like mood pieces and they're super ambitious in scope. Very singular to her once again. And as we mentioned, La Tortura is a big global smash, but the English language single Don't Bother kind of stiffs in comparison to her previous English songs. The label went to Wyclef and was like, do you have a song for 
for Shakira. Uh. We're looking for a hit for her. And he was like, I don't want to write something for her because I have something that I've done already that's perfect for her. And it's called Dance Like This. It's already been released with Claudette Ortiz, who was the lead singer of erstwhile protégés of Wyclef, City High, who people might remember from What Would You Do? Yeah, yeah. That was on the Dirty Dancing Havana Nights soundtrack. Oh my God. I had no idea about this going into this. I never knew this. And basically, Wyclef was like, Shakira would smash this song. So he sent it to her and Shakira was like, I want to rework the whole thing in classic Shakira fashion. Obviously, she's not going to just take some song and re-record it. She's going to completely redo it. So the song gets redone and is essentially not a cover, but a remake of this song, Dance Like This. And as you said, gets totally brought into Shakira's world. And of course, as we know, becomes the biggest hit of her career in English-speaking countries. It is her signature song. It is the song that I think most American people know Shakira for. Oh, baby, when you talk like that, you make a woman go mad. So be wise and keep on reading the signs of my body. I'm on tonight, you know my hips don't lie, and I'm starting to feel it's right. All the attraction, the tension. So I knew that the song was a remake, but I had no idea that the label had reached out to Wyclef and was like, yeah, help us out. How big of a star was Wyclef by, back then? He was a big producer. You know, I think the Fugees had been huge. Lauren ended the Fugees run pretty quickly. And Wyclef was known for working and producing artists and also had a bit of world sound association. Like he had this album called The Carnival, which had come out. That was his solo album. And the whole concept of it was that he spanned lots of different styles and different world sounds and he was known for that. I don't know why Wyclef might have been the person that they turned to out of everybody, but clearly it was a magical collaboration because this song, whatever, it's a fucking banger. You can't deny Hip So Lie. Hip So Lie, to this day in DJ land, you put that song on in any scenario and there's nobody that ever doesn't want to hear <laughs> Hip So Lie. It's such a great song. Well, just like the iconic Shakira, uh, Shakira, 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 yeah. Shakira, Shakira. That I think has become the siren calls. It's interesting too that Wyclef had a Carnival album because like so many of the references to in this music video are like sort of carnival at Barranquilla and like there's so much tradition that she's pulling from of the festival culture in Barranquilla for the music video itself it kind of makes sense that the label would want to go there because it, you could kind of see like a tiny bit of connective tissue from that and La Tortura of this is the line that they wanted to draw versus the darker stuff that's happening on Fijación Oral but yeah I mean I don't think that anyone could have predicted just how well that one was going to go yeah and then of course I think it's the success of that song that leads to her collaboration with Beyonce later that year with Beautiful Liar. Just to illustrate how big Shakira is at this time, Beyonce turns to Shakira for a hit. I think that that just helps illustrate for people just how huge Hips Don't Lie was. I mean, Hips Don't Lie was such a big fucking hit that Beyonce was like, who should I duet with to help turn my commercial fortunes around? She's turning to Shakira. So I think that's just a really interesting little moment in time or time capsule about just how fucking humongous Hips Don't Lie was. I mean, that song was inescapable. Maybe one of the biggest songs of that decade. Before we get into what I 
would call the third wave of Shakira. There's this record, She Wolf, in 2009. Mm -hmm. This is a personal favorite of mine. It is a really interesting pivot. I think maybe the first time that she completely kind of abandons the sort of rock leanings entirely of her music to this point and fully kind of leans into working with American producers and collaborators. Pharrell produces a lot of songs on this record. John Hill, who is famous at this time for producing Santa Gold's music, is a big presence here. This is like a dance pop album. It's led off by the absolutely iconic She-Wolf. Do I love this song? I can't speak enough about how much I do. It's this <laughs> disco, sleek, sexy, but super weird song where she howls like a wolf and talks about feeling like a coffee machine in an office and all of these amazing, <laughs> again, the Shakira-isms that she adds to all of these things. As we were sort of threading through the whole conversation, no matter what Shakira does, no matter what she pivots to, there's these essential Shakira-isms that just come with her everywhere that she goes. What's happening on this record as you understand it and Is there ways that you see it as kind of a lark in a sense for her? So I do think that I see a little bit of a connection when I go back and listen to Fiesta Morado. Like there is a little bit of an interest in these disco, dark, electronic sounds that I think make Pharrell an interesting person to work with next. I think you see glimpses of those to a very small degree, but then it does become a completely different side of Shakira that we haven't really seen yet. And I think she talked a lot in interviews about her goal was just to get people dancing, to really, really embrace that side of her. I'm sure that a lot of the success of Hipster don't lie of that being the quintessential club banger that gets everybody up probably had something to do with that but it does really really stand out in her discography this is full Shakira in dance mode I think what's interesting about it is that it wasn't fully big dance pop songs in that we would think of like a Lady Gaga pop song right 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 they're also kind of moody in a certain way she wolf is kind of that lurking shadowy yeah Pop song that people still dance to, but it's got a little bit of that darkness at the time. So again, I feel like she's sort of negotiated a space for herself here where she can do dance pop and she can be really interested in club songs, but it still is kind of holding on to that Shakira world that she's already created. And I think her working with Pharrell is another thing that maybe we wouldn't have expected, but it works really, really well on this album. Shakira can kind of work with anybody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she can figure out how to make it work in her world. They all sound like Shakira songs at the end of the day, even though they sound so different from each other. You know, that's what's so interesting. The Pharrell collaborations are really interesting to me because A, you've got these slamming songs that almost feel like post-hard candy Pharrell songs, like I did it again. Post Gwen Stefani, Pharrell, a little bit like Hollerback Girl on Speed kind of vibes, but with that weird accordion sound, and she just can stand up to them. Pharrell had such a distinct sound in so many ways by this point, but it really took an artist with Shakira's force of personality to stand up and assert herself over that stuff, and she does it really effectively. Mm-hmm. I really do enjoy her collaboration with Pharrell. And then also, as you were saying, the sort of shift that Shakira is going to take in the latter swing of her career, as we were sort of talking about with La Tortura 
towards reggaeton and dancehall and all of these more electronic dance styles also feels like a really important layer of this record. Songs like Long Time, for instance, are these kind of slinky. Mm -hmm. It's got big Latin American horns. It's got reggaeton rhythms to it. I love that song. I love Good Stuff is another one that deals with this rhythm. I love Good Stuff. I think this album is so underrated. I love, love, love this. I love the lyric, why wait for later? I'm not a waiter. Come on, that is like a Shakira classic. (laughs) So She-Wolf is a success. I think the song She-Wolf peaks at number 11 in the US. The record does pretty well. I know that there was a lot of backlash once again to her sort of selling out to American pop and sounds with this record, right? That was still an undercurrent. That's still very much a conversation. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way to set up maybe a way for us to talk broadly about the last 10 years of Shakira's career. So when She-Wolf comes out, that's 2009. Shakira's been in the spotlight for 15 years. She's been making relevant hit music for that amount of time. She's managed, as we've said, to morph change with the times without losing her essential Shakira-ness. Also, we should touch on, she has a huge global smash the next year with Waka Waka, this time for Africa, which is a song mm-hmm. she does of for the course. World Cup. We can't not touch on this. This is like an Afrofusion soca Congolese Roomba. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's interesting to me is earlier in the conversation, I was talking a little bit about the Pico culture thing and how African music is such a big influence in Colombia. And and there's a lot of huge Afro-Colombian communities in Colombia as well. I talked to this guy who like runs a blog about Pico culture and he was like, because Waka Waka, I guarantee you that's a song that was probably playing in the Bicos, that was probably playing at Carnival, yeah. that Shakira knew as a kid, because she talked about knowing the original rhythm that was used for that song. And he was like, I guarantee you that that's something that she knew as a child and then figured out a way to rework it into what the World Cup anthem became. Yeah, but it was very controversial, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, by then, Shakira slowly embraced the blonde hair. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, there's so many South African artists that we could have used for the song, and why is it Shakira? <laughs> it goes back to what we said at the beginning which is like this funny idea of where she exists in the pop firmament at this point, which is like Shakira to many people is just the world girly. She's the girly of the world. Exactly. And of course, to pick this gorgeous, light-skinned woman to be that representative has a lot of baggage attached to it. Exactly. She's the citizen of the world. She's the pop superstar of the world. <laughs> like, oh yeah, Colombia, South Africa, what's the difference? It's the same <laughs> idea. They're all exotic. Yeah. I think it's incredibly fair criticism to be like, what the fuck was Shakira doing? But- <laughs> <laughs> and yet the song is such a joy bomb and so much fun. And yet the song is good, yeah. When she performed it at the Super Bowl, that was such a great moment. That choreo that they all did was, ugh, I love, I love, love, love that performance. Yeah, so she's drawing also from Champeta. I think it was important for her too to really showcase Afro-Columbian dancers in the video for that to kind of show that we joke about it. They're not the same thing, but <laughs> I think that she really felt like there was Afro-Columbian roots in Colombia that she could bring out. She's drawn connections. Exactly. The other funny thing is that that's the video set where she meets Gerard Piquet, who's in the video and who will be her partner for the next 11 years and come up later in her music. And the engine behind her fourth wave of success over the last couple of years. Exactly. So in thinking about Shakira's 2010s output, like in one swoop, I think she gets into this rhythm where it's like one Spanish language album, one English language album. She releases in 2010 this record, Sale El Sole. Is that the way to say it? Sale El Sole, yeah. She signs a new record deal. She releases 
a self-titled English album in 2014 called Shakira. And then in 2017, she releases this album, El Dorado. I know there's different things happening on all these records. What are your broad takeaways from Shakira's 2010s output? How does she function? How successful is she in both of the marketplaces that she's trying to play to? And what kind of songs is she sort of making in this period of her work? So I think in the 2010, especially with Sal El Sol, reggaeton has started taking off, but reggaeton had a really tough time. And it sucks and it makes me mad because I think that people, especially in the Latin music industry, turn their nose up at it. They saw it as this very urban, mm. often very black genre, and were really not accepting of it. And so instead, the Trojan horse were kind of the what's popular in reggaeton in people's homes, like the way that they bring that into kind of like the glossier radio airwaves is by kind of mixing it with tropical sounds. Yeah, right. So there's this early prototype tropical reggaeton fusion that's still kind of pop, but not totally street that a lot of artists were doing at the time. And so I think Shakira is dabbling with that a little bit on Sal del Sol. And she's working with artists like Gaia Trece, who Residente was kind of like the ringleader of this very sarcastic, politically conscious, not fully kind of reggaeton, but not fully kind of rejecting reggaeton at the same time. So she's finding ways into it and into this tropical sound that I think is still going to be popular and is still going to be connect and still makes her relevant, but also doesn't have to be her totally going on one side or the other. This record is like a fucking summer day. I absolutely yeah. loved listening to this album. I mean, Loca one of her all-time greats in both languages. One of the songs that actually I think works really effectively both in English and in Spanish. And I'm crazy, but you like She's not being artsy, Shakira, I think. I think on She-Wolf, she started kind of shedding some of that. And then here, she's like, let's get at the top of the Billboard top Latin albums. And she achieves that. You know, Sal del Sol is nominated for a Latin Grammy. It's nominated for Album of the Year. It wins Best Female Pop Album, tops the Latin album charts on Billboard. And it's pretty high up on the Billboard 200. Yeah. But I wouldn't say it's heady Shakira, rock Shakira that we were talking about in the beginning with the irony and the wordplay in her, in her lyrics. But again, savvy. I'm so taken with her ability to see where things are going and to situate herself in there in a way that doesn't feel awkward. So many pop stars as they get like into this phase of their career attempt to keep doing that. Madonna is actually a great example of someone who in her recent career has attempted to adopt elements of forthcoming genres, whether it's trap or hyper pop or whatever. And you just are rolling your eyes into the back of your fucking head. <laughs> Shakira never feels that way. She has a really natural way of sliding into all of these different sounds that never feels like she's pushing herself beyond her capacities in this weird way. And she's continuing to have big success, especially in Latin America and yeah. a lot of global markets. With, I mean, Loca is a huge hit. Rabiosa is a huge hit. Her 2014 album, Shakira, the self-titled one, is by far my least favorite that I listened to over the course of this. I feel like this record lacked a lot of personality that I have come to expect from her. The lyrics feel a little bit more generic to me. You've got the Rihanna collabo that feels a little bit prefab and less exciting than I would have hoped it would have been maybe I can't remember to forget you.
I don't know. This to me was one of her least singular sounding albums. You got this Dr. Luke and Circuit Max Martin song that really feels like it's trying to be J-Lo's on the floor or something like that. And it's not particularly huge. I think this was a moment of flagging success for her in American marketplace. Yeah, definitely. This wave of three albums, I think, is probably starting with Sal El Sol, Shakira, and El Dorado were probably where I'm least excited about Shakira. And I think I can appreciate the savviness of some of it. I can appreciate the savviness of the Rihanna collaboration. I can appreciate the savviness of trying out merengue and tropical sounds. But it's not my favorite Shakira era. Yeah, It's smart because it kept her relevant in the marketplace, right? And she's still around, especially on the Latin side with El Dorado. She's now starting to really go harder into the reggaeton wave that's happening and finding a stronger way to do it. So she's like, Chantaje with Maluma was massive. I love that song. You don't love that song? It's not my favorite, but I mean, in that video. So hot. Oh my God, she's so hot in that video. She's like the hottest thing in the world. Schooling Maluma completely. Oh my God, totally. Walking him like a dog. Yeah, and then there's Nicky Jam on here. There's the Carlos Vives song that was like a really huge hit, La Bicicleta. Yeah. They're not my favorite. And if anything, I would say this is a period where one of these huge radio hits would come on on the radio. And I was kind of like, right. not the first thing that I want to listen to. Right. They were huge. They were huge. And they worked for her. Which is so impressive. It's so impressive to be in this phase of her career and to be having hits like this. Even if you're less excited about them on an artistic front, her ability to have hits late into her career in this way, that doesn't happen very often for pop singers, especially for women in this industry. <laughs> it's really, really impressive. Yeah. And I think she was very fine if I'm not in my artistic bag anymore, guys. I did that. Now I'm just gonna ride the commercial wave and let it be what it is. She's kind of unapologetic even in that approach too, I think. Shakira remains cool seeming, I think is a big thing about all of this. Yeah. She has a real natural cool factor to her, I think, that allows her to still make relevant music that kids can feel like comfortable being into in a way that a lot of pop stars get to this era of their career. The main teenage consuming audience of pop music is like, why is grandma here? I think Shakira has an enduring cool factor. She also still, we should say, looks fucking amazing. She really is still just as stunning as ever. She had to have been, what, in her 40s for that Chantaje song? And she looked like she was 23. She hasn't aged. She looks the same as she did. Fucking tips don't lie. It's insane. So Shakira's then had an expansion of her success once again over the last couple of years, as you were mentioning. She's had this really public breakup with this guy that cheated on her. All this shit went down. And she's also kind of in trouble with the Spanish tax authorities. (laughs) So she's been in the news lab, but she spun that into gold because she's, as we said, most recently had a big run of hits, including her first two top 10 songs in America since 2006, since Hips Don't Lie with, I don't even freaking know how to say this, Bizrap music session. Yeah. I mean, talk about positioning yourself. So Bizrap is this producer from Argentina who has a YouTube channel where he kind of creates beats and people freestyle on the fly. His profile had really started growing. I don't know if you remember the Residente J Balvin diss track that was all over the place. That, I think, helped him give him a boost. I think Shakira's been working on a new album for a long time now that people have been really anticipating. And she releases a few of the early tracks. So prior to releasing the songs, she announces her breakup with BK. So immediately everybody's like, oh my God, this is going to be a Shakira breakup album. We can't wait to hear what she has to say and so she releases the biz rap one which is the one that is just explosive yeah. and goes everywhere Ooh. 
people I think were really surprised. And I talked to somebody about this who was kind of like, I think it's weird that Shakira is being so public and so direct. And what I loved about Shakira is that she's a great songwriter. But I'm kind of like, if you listen to Shakira's songs, she's always kind of blasted people who treated her badly. Oh, for sure. For sure. Also, that's every pop star's right, please. Taylor Swift out here touring fucking <laughs> stadiums, girl, off the back of doing that very thing. Thank you, Next. I kept thinking about in relation to these songs. Yeah. We demand this of our pop stars, please. That's an insane <laughs> criticism to be leveled at her. Yeah. And it's not so different than what she'd always done, which is to be really, really honest and put it all out there in her music. Right. I think the difference now is probably this is the most high profile relationship she'd been in. Right. Nobody was paying this much attention when she was dating the president of Argentina's son or whatever. But this is such a big moment because the breakup has been announced. Everybody knows that they're together and she's playing on words a little bit and kind of naming him yeah. in an indirect way. Like the salpique line, the end of that word salpique is pique. So right. she's teasing it and she's also knowing how to orchestrate the buzz around it. But I think the fact that she picked Bizarrap is really, really surprising. And she later said in an interview that actually her son, who I think is probably a preteen right now, suggested the collaboration. So again, it's just Shakira keeping an ear out and seeing what's popular, listening to her kids because she's like, he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. And it worked out so well for her. She eviscerates this poor man in this song, though. The lyric that translates to so much time at the gym, but maybe work out your brain a bit too. Damn. <laughs> wow. The Rolex and Casio yeah. line. I mean, it's, it's... <laughs> Who traded a Ferrari for a Twingo. <laughs> Taking no prisoners. She went in on this guy. He clearly deserved it though, I gotta say. He did. Yeah. And so when Carol G sees her going off, she's like, all right, I have a song that works for you too. And so that's when she brings her in for Carol G song, right. which apparently is a song that Carol G had been trying to get a collaboration with Shakira for years. Yeah. And it finally works out with this and again shows I think Carol G in a lot of ways can be seen as part of the Shakira lineage right she's another artist from Colombia that is working right now to break into the US granted she's doing it speaking only in Spanish but had an album that made number one earlier this year and so the fact that they're collaborating together and releasing the song together I think also kind of shows to the Shakira influence you know and how she's being looked up at by this generation of artists that are now trying to do a similar thing to what she already did and what she paved the way for but they're doing it in Spanish and trying to show that they can find a new way into this global fame that she was able to reach. The last question I want to ask you before we talk about the Pantheon, and we've now covered a literal 30-year career. I mean, one of the most impressive global pop careers of the modern era. There's no question about it. This woman is a historic figure. I often end these interviews by asking, what is Shakira's legacy? I think her legacy is one of the most obvious legacies in pop. We are literally looking at Shakira's legacy as one of the most central forces in pop music at the moment, which is music of Latin America, Latin American artists are becoming the biggest pop stars on earth. And they're able to do so now, as we were mentioning earlier, without making any concessions, really. You have Bad Bunny, you have Rosalia, you have Carol G, you have all of these incredible artists that are global superstars. Bad Bunny is the biggest artist 
on earth, bar none. He has never had to make a single concession to quote unquote American pop sounds. He's able to bring that all to his orbit. And to me, you can't tell the story of all of these artists of this entire wave without talking about the trail Shakira blazed. And she did them, as we said, with so much savvy and with so much personality and so much panache and so much singularity and such great music and without ever feeling like she was getting usurped by that ambition or letting her artistry be suffocated out by that ambition. And that is an incredible legacy. I mean, she is really something. This was one of those deep dives that I walked away just with the utmost admiration for what she's achieved, how much hard work went into this, how much thought, how intelligent she is, how smart she was about all of this stuff. Her legacy is incredibly evident to me in the pop firmament of the current day. Is there anything that I've missed here that you see as Shakira's long-lasting legacy in the pop space? I would just say, too, one of the reasons that I think that she feels so near to what's happening right now in Latin music and how global it's become is because she's still relevant into that world. It's not like she paved the way and then went away and we're kind of remembering her retrospectively, like, oh, she did all these things. She's still very much a part of that conversation. She brought out Bad Bunny at the Super Bowl, right? right? She's kind of co-signing these artists, too, without ever leaving and continuing to, like, reach new highs, like this Bizrap song, which broke whatever Spotify day of record. So what makes her interesting to me is that we're not done seeing the full scope of what she's going to do. She's still very much relevant. She's still very much a part of the conversation. And we're probably going to be talking about the next 10 years of her career down the line. And that's also going to be part of her pop legacy. And it hasn't happened yet. Please don't go to jail, girly. We need you out here. I know, right? (laughs) 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 All right. So let's talk about the pop pantheon. Now, I realize here, and I'm already fearing the backlash I'm going to get from the listeners of this podcast. Oh boy. I believe we are going to have to put Shakira in separate tiers based on certain marketplaces. Yeah. Shakira is one of those artists where depending on the context you're talking about her in, she slots into different tiers. Does that make sense to you as an idea? I think so. I was really struggling between the icon tier and the megastar tier because I think in terms of an icon, I think especially given what she did at the beginning of her career in the Latin world, I think she already won the Latin Grammy Person of the Year Award in 2011 and that's given to people when they're like 70. She's got to be tier one in the Latin American pop market. There's no question about that. She's definitely one of the most important pop stars of all time in that particular field, it feels like to me. Yeah, one of the most iconic voices, one of the most iconic writers. And then I I kind of struggled. I almost wish there was something a little bit in the middle for her body of English language work. Yeah, this is what I was mulling over. I think tier one Latin America, no question about it. I think tier three, perhaps, in America. Is that bad? I think so. Tier two. You think tier two? Yeah, I think so. Let's talk about it. Highly relevant and producing numerous, at least 15 genuine hit songs over a decade, many of which are still highly recognizable by audiences who do not grow up with them. In thinking about her music in the most globalized sense, you're at a bar mitzvah in fucking Des Moines, Iowa. I don't know if the <laughs> Jews live in Des Moines, Iowa, whatever. You get my point here. What Shakira songs are enduring to that group of people, do you think? I think Hips Don't Lie would be in Definitely. there. I think She Wolf would be in there. Whenever, wherever. Sheila's Whenever, Wherever, I think is going to get played at the party. My only point in putting this out there is that I do think there is a weirdly skewed perception. It's the Kylie Minogue of the whole thing. In the majority of the world, Kylie Minogue is 
a tier one fucking icon of Madonna stature in so much of the world. And then here, people think of her as the girl that's saying, can't get you out of my head. I think Shakira is a much bigger deal in America, obviously, than Kylie Minogue is. And also, it's a little bit difficult because, as you mentioned, there's a huge Latin American marketplace in America to which Shakira is an even bigger star than she is to, I think, many English language observers. She's unclassifiable in this weird way. I was going to say, tier one Latin America, tier two globally tier three to english american audiences perhaps i'm not sold on the tier okay okay because i feel like anybody in the english language world would recognize that shakira is a massive star up there with agago now maybe the hits are a little less recognizable but in terms of sheer star quality she did the super bowl i mean she literally had led the super Bowl. she did the super bowl and granted she had to split it with jayla which is annoying (laughs) but honestly the best one in my opinion they smashed that But yeah, I hear you because I think Shakira's footprint, even to English-speaking American or European audiences, she still seems like a massive, massive star. I would also add Waka Waka probably into her songs that probably register for everyone. All right. So I think I'd take Shakira in tier two. Shakira tier two, globally tier one, Latin America. Yeah. Does that work? Yeah, that works for me. All right. So last question for you. What is an underrated Shakira song? Something that we have not spoken about that we could send the show out on. Oh my God. (laughs) So hard. Yeah, there's a lot of them. Let's do Inevitable. Inevitable is the one that all American audiences, that's like her in her rock era. She's shredding it. It's such a banger. What a song. (laughs) Perfect pick. We're going to go out on, I don't even want to say it. I'm so bad at saying it. Inevitable. Inevitable. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for bearing with me through my horrible Spanish. Julissa Lopez, thank you so, so much. This was an absolute blast. Thank you so much for having me. What a thrill to get to talk about Shakira's career this in depth. Well, there you have it. Pop Pantheon Shakira, a certified tier one in Latin America and a tier two megastar globally. The judgment is rendered. I want to thank the fabulous Julissa Lopez for being such a wonderful and insightful guest. Of course, to my right-hand man, Russ Martin, for everything he does to make the show happen every week. To PJ Vernetti for his help editing this episode. And to Alex Lobo for designing the artwork. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Join our Patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon for bonus content and access to our Discord channel and so much more. And of course, come to Gorgeous Gorgeous New York and Gorgeous Gorgeous LA on June 9th and June 16th, respectively. Ticket links in the show notes. And until we meet again next week, have a wonderful life. Adios. Adios.